book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter 4, we are not too far off the end of this book. Um, we'll be here for a few, for I think this will be uh, counting today four more weeks and then we'll be on to the next thing. But uh, 1 Peter, Peter's had a lot to say to us, especially in the realm of suffering. And today he's kind of wrapping that up in 1 Peter 4 verses 12 through 19. So let's stand as we read God's word together. This is the word of God. If you let it, it will change your life. First Peter chapter four, verses 12 through 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Pray with me. Father, I pray this morning as we approach your word, that we would not seek to stand over it like to boss it around, to tell it what to do. We are not the supervisors of your words. Father, we seek to understand, to bow ourselves before your word, for them to change us, not for us to change them. So Father, shape us into your likeness that we may not shape you into ours. Use your word in this time. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. You know, uh, some of you were around, uh, can, are old enough to remember the first time that someone on your block got a color television. Who can, who can remember that? Okay, who remembers, I, I, I don't know if you might want to admit this, but who remembers the first person on your block getting a television at all, like you know, black and white? Yeah, so I'm told, maybe you guys can can help me out on this, I'm told that that was a spectacular event. Um, I've heard of cases where people would come from all over the neighborhood to just come to that person's house who had the TV just to see it, just to watch it, just amazed at the spectacle that was going on before them. Uh, my generation doesn't have that specific experience, but we have another like it. September 11th was that kind of a day. Classes, I was in college and classes stopped. I got into an American history, a modern American history class. And the teacher's like, I'm not going to teach you history today because it's happening right in front of you. She canceled class and basically said, American history is being written right now. Thankfully, I got out of a quiz that day, but um, I wasn't quite ready for it. But 
It was a day that I remember distinctly uh, going, just watching. I, I couldn't take my eyes off the screen. There was not a whole lot we knew. I mean, we knew some airplanes had hit buildings. We knew that it was an attack. We knew uh, some basic things, but we didn't know a whole lot. Information was slowly coming out, but, but still, we just knew the, tragis, the tragedy, the, the tragedy of the event was just so great that, that we couldn't look away, that we just couldn't do anything else. It's, it's, a, it's a fact about human, uh, the human nature that we are, we are captivated by the novel. When something new comes along, we are spellbound. You could say we're arrested. We can't really do anything else. We can't talk about anything else. We just want to know about that. We want to see that. We want to, we want to experience that. And even in a bad thing, like a September 11th, we still can't look away. We still can't turn to something else because this thing captures us. Peter is talking to an audience who some of which are enduring suffering and some of which are about to endure suffering. And he tells them, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial. We should not be surprised by suffering. Sometimes we are surprised when suffering happens, especially the persecution kind of suffering, the kind of suffering where we are suffering for Jesus' sake. Sometimes it surprises us. It catches us off guard. It blindsides us. We don't expect it coming. And Peter says, don't be surprised. Look, look beloved, that's a, that's a sermon in that one word. These are people Peter loves. And he says, Guys, don't be surprised. You might not have known that it was coming just now. You might not have known the exact way that the suffering would come. You might not realize when and where the fiery trial will happen, but don't be surprised by it. Interestingly, this word comes from another word in this verse. Look down a little bit further. As though something strange were happening to you. The word for surprise comes from that word for strange. Sometimes we see the new thing and it shocks us. It catches us completely off guard. And the typical temptation for us as people is to be so captivated by it that we can't see anything else. We become almost paralyzed. The fiery trial is coming. It might not be a literal fiery trial. I know for three Hebrew boys it was. Boys by the name of Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael lived in Babylon. They had been exiled there in 609 along with another friend of theirs, Daniel, in which uh, his book is in which the one we read this story. But Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael are renamed. You may not even recognize those names. Those are their Hebrew names. But they're renamed the Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Okay. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego face a real fiery trial, don't they? Nebuchadnezzar builds this huge image, 90 feet tall, 9 feet wide, and he commands, it's, it's, it's overlaid with gold, probably made of wood, and overlaid with gold, and he commands all of the leading government officials throughout the area to bow and to worship at this image, to worship the gods that he has set up. And these three Hebrew boys won't. 
And then they endure a fiery trial, don't they? In the form of a furnace. You see, there are fiery trials. And the new thing, the suffering that we think of as strange and we think of as foreign and we think of as something that we never would have seen coming and we've never been through this before, that new thing isn't really a new thing at all. You see, Satan doesn't have very many plays in the playbook. Unfortunately, he doesn't need very many because a lot of his work. But one of the plays he has is the play to cause suffering to the person who would follow God. Oh, you really? You want to follow this God? Let's see, let's see how well you can endure these hardships. And make no mistake about it. They are hard. Fiery trials are not named fiery trials because they're easy. You will not face a fiery trial until you decide, I'm going to follow God. And then the only way to follow God is through the fire. Now, that doesn't mean literal fire. That doesn't even mean that it's persecution per se. It might be you just get looked over when it comes time for promotions. It might be that uh, perhaps you lose some friends because you stand firm on conviction. It might be that people just think you're, you're a terrible person. You might get ridiculed or scorned. It may not be something very obvious. It may be under the surface, but there are going to be fiery trials. First Peter, uh, uh, Peter actually said earlier in this book, in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, Remember, we talked about, when we talked about this verse, we talked about the fact that gold is put through the fire and it's purified in the fire. But even the gold that is purified, that, that, that is tested and proven to be valuable, to be real, even that gold falls away. It perishes. It's destroyed. Everything of this world will come to naught. But the test of genuineness of your faith is more precious than that. Because it will, it will last beyond the trial. At least if your faith is genuine. Is your faith genuine? Is it real? Or is it just, is it butter on your toast? I... I What's so hard about this is that it's so easy to talk about it and it's so easy to say, yes, we should, we should have a real faith and we should be willing to go through the trial. And then when the trial hits, it's just daggum hard. But even in the midst of that trial, Peter is telling his audience that there is something that you can do even in the middle of the fiery trial, even in the middle of the suffering. He tells us not to be surprised by it, but he also tells us we can be joyful in it. You see, we don't have to sulk through suffering. We don't have, we don't have to be down and out and depressed because it's hard. I got to be honest with you. I have a hard time on this one. Okay? It's me. The guy in my mirror struggles here. Okay? My temptation 
is to list all of the problems and be the victim. Do some of y'all do that, maybe? Any of y'all do that? No, it's just me. There's times when Carrie will ask me what's wrong, and I just like I I, I just start naming off things. Like, look how bad this is for me. And she has to tell me, dude, man up. She doesn't say it that way. When we look at our suffering, at, at, at the trials, at the, the fiery furnaces of our life, when we are suffering for the name of Christ, when we look at those and we see ourselves as victims of the circumstance, we cannot have joy. But when we look beyond those, we see that the fiery furnace is small. It's hot. It's tough. But it's small. And there's a few reasons we can be joyful, even when we're in that furnace. One is because we share the suffering with Christ. We don't do it on our own. Look, look at verse 13. But rejoice. By the way, that's a command. That word is imperative. It is a command. It is not, I hope you can find a way to somehow in the midst of all the problems get just a little bit of joy out of this. No, he's command. Rejoice. How? Insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. You are sharing the sufferings with Jesus. One of the great things about this Christian life is that he is, well, he, he's the, He's Christ, right? Think, if you could play basketball with anybody, would you rather play with me or with Michael Jordan? We're on a, we're on a playground. You got your choice. There's Michael Jordan and there's Michael Lucina. I guarantee you, you should be picking Michael Jordan, right? You want to play basketball. You want to play with greats. You don't want to play basketball with some guy that, isn't great. Let's just put it that way. If you're going to go through these trials, don't you want to go through the trials with somebody who has been through them already? Someone whose shoulders are big enough to carry the load. Take my yoke upon you, he says. We share the sufferings of Christ. Now that means we go through some of the same things he suffered, but it also means that we go through them with him. So that suffering, that furnace, there weren't just three guys in that furnace. They threw three in. But then he didn't see three, did he? He looked in there and he saw four. We share the suffering with Christ. We also share the glory with Christ. And that's a reason to rejoice. We can rejoice not only because we're not alone in the suffering, but because we're sharing in the glory. Now, part of that is seeing the glory of Christ. Look at the end of 13. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. You are not only rejoicing because you're sharing in his sufferings, you're also rejoicing because he's going to be glorified. Amen. He's already glorified. But that glory hasn't been revealed yet. The word revealed there, apocalyptos. There's a whole book of the Bible named the apocalyptos. Of Jesus Christ, the book of Revelation. Jesus is going to be revealed. He is going. You're going to see his glory. And not just you, everybody is going to see his glory. You can't help but see when the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is glorified. You can't help but see it. 
So, so one day, one day your faith is going to be sight. And that's going to be a day of rejoicing for those who have followed that Christ. Unfortunately, it's not a day of rejoicing for those who aren't. But we can rejoice because though we suffer now, he will be glorified. But we don't just see the glory of Christ. We don't just look forward to the glory of Christ. We also share in it. Look down in verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. If you're doing wrong stuff, you deserve the suffering. You can't say, I killed a guy. Now I'm in prison. I'm suffering for Jesus. No. That's not, that's not how this works. Instead, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. You ever feel ashamed because you're going through the hard times for declaring the name of Jesus and you feel like you just got to put your head down not really talk to anybody? Don't do that. No. Now I'm not saying puff up your chest and let your head get all big and say, yeah, look at me. I've seen people do that too. I've seen people that shout down other folks yelling at them that they're going to hell. And when people walk away, they take pride in it like they are doing God's work. Wait a minute, if you're taking pride in getting shunned, it's not ex that's not exactly where you take the pride, is it? Now, if you're going to boast, don't boast in the fact that you've been rejected. Boast in the fact that God has saved you. But he who boasts... Boast in this, that he knows me, that I am the Lord. If you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed. Don't hang your head down. Don't also be proud either. But let him glorify God in that name. See, because you're bearing a name that's worth glorifying, you're actually partaking in a little bit of that glory too. Now, <laughs> kind of an odd way to show it because you're suffering, because you're going through the fiery trial but no matter no matter you're not a physical being only and though they might burn the body though they might kill though they might destroy your flesh they are not touching your soul don't fear the one that can kill you fear the one that can kill you and destroy your soul Jesus says by the way, that brings up another good point. If God is the one we should fear, what power does the suffering have on us anymore? You see, if we are fearing God, then, then, then the physical pain and anguish of it, the, the, the emotional toll that going through the trial might have on it, it doesn't bear the same sort of sting anymore. Death, where is your sting? It has no sting. Because death is swallowed up in victory. You see, what Christ does isn't just, he, he doesn't just save your soul, though he does that. He also reorients you so that even those who would oppose you have no power over you. Oh, they can take your body and bind it and throw you in a furnace. That's nothing. Not, not compared to the glory that awaits we share in the glory of Christ. We also share in the spirit of Christ too. We skip verse 14. Let's go back to it. If you are insulted for the name of Christ. Did you notice that? 
Verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, verse 16 is glorify God in that name. If you suffer as a Christian, do you see what's going on here? The suffering here is all for Christ. And because you are hearing in the suffering of Christ, and, and, and we have that promise that we will share in the glory of Christ, we also realize that the Spirit of Christ is dwelling within us. Otherwise, how could we go through all this suffering and have joy? If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. This is blessed as the meek. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Same word. Those beatitudes, that's the same word there. Saying, if you're insulted, blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. But rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are blessed, why? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. That word rest is not lay down for a nap. It's set up your dwelling place. That's permanent. We have the spirit of Christ. A spirit that, Peter, uh, that Paul says that seals us for the day of redemption. It's a spirit that was promised in Joel that I will pour out my spirit upon my people. It's that same spirit that the Messiah says the spirit has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captives. That same spirit that was hovering over the face of the waters to create from nothing is that same spirit that is resting upon us to recreate us in Christ's image. It's the same spirit that's walking through us, in us, with us, in the midst of the fiery trial. That's a reason to have joy, y'all. What's one of, the, one of the greatest temptations when you're going through it is to think you're all alone, but you're not. God's spirit in you, Christ beside you, walking through it with you. It's a reason to have joy. We can also have joy because we share the righteousness of Christ too. This is, this is one of the coolest things about this is that Jesus doesn't just, like, like, he doesn't just cancel your debt. You know, we have a word for canceling debt. It's called bankruptcy. And bankruptcy follows you around for a long time. If you file bankruptcy, you can't get loans for quite a while. Because you didn't pay back your last ones. You file for bankruptcy. You gotta reorganize things and you, you've gotta, you've gotta prove yourself trustworthy before anyone will trust you. Right? Christ doesn't just bankrupt us from our sin. Savannah, I need you to sit on the pew, please. Thank you, baby. Christ doesn't just bankrupt us from our sin. It doesn't just take it away and cancels the debt and there's just that big canceled uh, uh, stamp on it. One of the things that he does is he makes us righteous. Look at verse 17. For it is time... 
for the judgment to begin at the household of God. Isn't that great news? How many of you want judgment? How many of you want judgment to start right here? I don't know about that. The other day, someone, um, one of our, uh, one of the guys that, that one of the companies that uh, corporate hires to check, check on things in the restaurants to make sure we're doing things properly and basically kind of to police ourselves before the health inspector comes. Uh, one of those guys was on the way. So we got word they were on the way. So you know what we started doing, right? We started getting things ready. <coughs> we had, <coughs> excuse me, we had stuff all over the place that didn't belong there that we were out trying to put up. And we were, everybody was making sure they were following the right procedures. We were cleaning things up. We were, we were preparing because we knew in a short amount of time that person was going to come in and they were going to nitpick on details. And we needed to be ready, Right? I would really like for God to judge some other folks first so I have time to, to prepare, right? Don't we all? Do we really want judgment to come? Because it's going to start here with us. God's going to start with his own people. He's not going to judge a world that rejects him and leave the people that claim to follow him alone. He's going to start with us. He's going to make us right first. But you know the joy of that? He begins with us because he loves us. The Lord loves the son whom he disciplines. Judgment is harsh. It, it, it's not fun. In fact, sometimes the fiery trial isn't... Well, why do you put gold in the fire? To purify. Sometimes God has to put us in the fire because there's some junk that he needs to burn off. The fiery trial, one of the biggest purposes of it is to get his people right. Nothing like a good fire to burn away all the dross. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? If God starts with us, those who don't obey, if God's willing to punish our sins, to deal with the problems in us, to purify us, don't you know he's not going to stop with us? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? If we, as the people of God, barely make it by the hairs on our chinny-chin-chin, chin, what about the big bad wolves trying to huff and puff and blow our house down? God is not interested in people who will claim his name and not look like him. He doesn't want sons who have his last name but none of his characteristics. He wants sons that look like your daddy. Daughters too. That's a reason to be joyful because we are saved. Oh, we, we, we might not have made it by our own merits. We fell woefully short. It's not based on our merits, is it? It's based on the merits of Christ. We have joy because this process of purification, this process of judgment, God shapes us to his image. He takes away all of the sin and all of the junk so that we will look like him, so that we will act like him, so that we will be like him, so that we will have his will and his heart. He shapes us and molds us and crafts us 
And as a result, we bear his righteousness. So much so that even our clothes are unstained. Final reason to be joyful. Because we share in the faithfulness of Christ. To quote a song, he's never going to give you up. He's never going to let you down. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Ada Haberson wrote a hymn in 1906. Listen to her words. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I can never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. Those he saves are his delight. Christ will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight, he will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. We have a faithful Christ. And because we suffer with him, because we share in his glory and in his spirit, because he puts his righteousness on us, imputes it to us, gives it to us, we know that he will be faithful to hold us until the very end. I can't hold on to him. I don't have that kind of grip. But he holds me. So even in the middle of the furnace, in the trial, even in the middle of the hardship and the pain, we can have real joy. Do you have that kind of joy? Sometimes I need reminding I do. Maybe that's you. Maybe you need to remember what God has done for you. And in the middle of the trial, entrust your soul to him. Remind yourself that he will hold you fast. Maybe that's you. Maybe, maybe you've not, maybe you're not going through the trial right now. It's coming. Some point or another. Like I said, it may not be a big thing. It may not be some persecution type situation, but there's going to be a point where your faith is put to the test. Don't be surprised, but rejoice because he's with you. He's given us his spirit. He's imparted on us his righteousness. One day we'll see his glory. And in the meantime, we just need to trust that he'll be faithful.